With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, everybody. If you like the Nothing But Nylon podcast and would like to receive more, hopefully, smart basketball content, I've started a weekly newsletter that you can get for $5 a month. If you're interested, you can go to my Twitter page at NBA Couchside and click on the link to my Patreon page in my bio. Also, there's a sample of the newsletter on my website, nbacouchside.com, about Milwaukee's Giannis Adetokounmpo. Thanks, and enjoy the show. Welcome to Nothing But Nylon, the Nylon Calculus Podcast. This is episode 10 with Bo Schwartz-Madsen. He's a writer for Nylon Calculus, and more importantly for today's episode, he went to the Sloan Conference, uh, the Sloan Sports Analytics Conference, which I uh, kind of went to, but did not actually attend. (laughs) I went to mingle and meet uh, folks like Bo, but uh, did did not uh, have have the uh, money to shell out for the ticket, so... Um, we're going to be getting uh, some insights from him about how the conference was and uh, what his impressions were and, and what things really stuck out to him as uh, being um, interesting or meaningful. Welcome, Bo. Thanks, Kevin. It's good to be here. <laughs> it's good to have you on. Uh, you know, we haven't had you on yet, um, and uh, it's it's always good to get uh, new new voices on as uh, guests for sure. So, I guess just to kick things off at the conference there was a talk on or a paper on uh, possession sketches that uh, seemed to get a lot of people's attention. Um, You mentioned uh, when we talked about this before we got on air that you found it pretty interesting. Um, Could you just go uh, into a little bit of uh, detail about that? Uh, Yeah so when you just said possession sketches I'm sure like none of the well very few of the listeners know what we then we're then talking about because that's sort of the terminology that the authors established is that so there's this thing called possession sketches and they what they did was they used uh, player tracking data to figure out offensive plays and categorize them uh, depending on what happened depending on what all the uh, five players did on offense and what they did is they uh, took say uh, and and how did it do that well first of all they had to figure out how do the uh, different players move and what different types of movement do they do during uh, a possession and they did this by player tracking data so every time a player stood still that would be a cut off in uh, well that would be a cut in in sort of the movement or that segment of that player so if a player just was running around a whole possession that would be 
one segment. But if he ran one way, stood still, ran the other way, then there would be two segments for that player, that possession. When um, when you do that for all players, then uh, they had so they had all the data from the 2014-15 season, uh, which meant uh, let's say was it a hundred and ninety thousand uh, possessions all in all. It's quite a lot. Uh, but when you do it, uh, when you note down all the segments, which they did by computer, they turned into like four point million segments. So four point million segments of players running uh, are, are moving, and uh, to, to um, they just then categorize, then clustered these into hundred different types, so that a cut along the baseline from the left to the right. Uh, even though the movements for a lot of different players would be different, they would be clustered into one because they looked so much alike in the player tracking data. And they could do that. And then they uh, looked uh, like overall on the possession and saw, okay, which types of segments coincided. So if there was a cut on the baseline and there was maybe also a cut from the wing at the same time, then you looked overall and saw, okay, this is the set they're running is based on what types of segments hadn't happened at the same time. Uh, and so by doing this, they could sort of categorize all these different kinds of offensive sets. And in the uh, presentation, which was actually really good, uh, this was a, a difficult topic to present to a lot of people that didn't know that much math. Uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, but in the presentations they showed uh, the Spurs hammer set uh, they also showed the Warriors weave set a lot of time and showed how they had categorized these sets and could automatically automatically find uh, all the other weave sets or a lot of the other weave sets just by letting the computer find similar uh, offensive sets and this was really interesting like when you can suddenly identify what the offense is doing automatically without having to like note it down yourself then you can automatically find comparable offensive sets you've run and then you can suddenly put stuff into context and and compare okay in this when we'd had this possession what happened uh, what are all the other possessions that went like this what happened in those and you can compare and see uh, what 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 did we do wrong? What what what's what was different, or uh, was this preferable, or is this usually something that goes wrong? Uh, and so and that's really useful. I think they didn't do that. They, this was just like a method for doing it, and so then potentially you can you can you can do that. Um, and I think I think it has some potential, and I, I think a lot of people uh, liked what they saw. Uh, yeah, I was going to say immediately jumping to mind to me for teams in terms of applications of this are one there's the obvious of in terms of scouting other teams if you can pull up go to the video and see every time they've run the hammer set for the spurs you can look at that and then you can Mm. scout that and even from a perspective of like trying to determine what things to call in what situations you could look and see you know Per possession, how well do you score with different set types in different situations? And so, like, and what what sets do they go to in different situations more frequently? So, you know, if you can identify with an algorithm 
uh, oh, they always run this set <laughs> out of timeouts, you know, when they're down three or something, you know that ahead of time. And that's like, that could be incredibly valuable for from a strategic perspective. I was also a bit interested in, because they are like, if they just use it, say you just use it for the 12 first seconds of the shot clock. And then you could identify like, okay, this possession went perfect until here, or all these possessions look the same. Uh, but then something messed up a subset of them. What went wrong in in those? What because they, all the possessions look alike until this point in time, and then suddenly they diverge. What goes wrong? Which players are involved in it going wrong? <laughs> uh, and all, all that type of stuff. I think you could also uh, look at. And because it's so easy then to like pull up the possession and find the video and then show it to coaches, I think it has a lot of use because you can directly see, okay, see here, this is here where this possession diverged from what we usually want to do. That makes total sense. You can kind of figure out where things are getting screwed up. And then from a defensive perspective, kind of doing the opposite, when you say, you know, where did these things diverge and where do things go wrong? What's the thing that causes them to go wrong the most often for the offense? Then you can kind of figure out what's the best way to play against this set because what's the thing that screws them up the most when you, you know, what disrupts this set more than anything else, you know, typically. So I think there's there's that uh, could provide a, a ton of value. It's essentially allowing the computer to do the work of, you know, tons and tons of scouts and make their jobs uh, much easier in terms of identifying all these things. And then and then you can take that information to the coach and obviously uh, tons of value. And that's those are the kinds of things I think that, that coaches are interested in because, like, I think a lot of the times some of the, the numbers analysis, and, and I think I know this is always a big co- topic of conversation around the conference is how do you make this information actionable? And th- this stuff seems with, you know, like this methodology with, you know, just a little bit of imagination, which is all I've really got, <laughs> seems to have, uh, <laughs> seems to have, uh, you know, a, a lot of applications that coaches would be very interested in. I think, I think also to to bring up like when you bring up the coaches, they would probably lo- know a lot of the stuff, right? Like already, like especially about their own team. Mm-hmm. So it would it would confirm a lot of the things they already knew. Um, but uh, I I agree with like on the the opposing teams that that because the the coaches don't know them that well, uh, then it could really potential potentially have some uh, have use in explain to coaches how this is useful and stuff. Um, I can't uh, let, let this topic go without also me- mentioning some of the buzzwords they used. Or I wouldn't say buzzwords, but I do work in the advertising industry and, 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 and they used, uh, so, so what they used for comparing uh, these segments, uh, co-occurring segments across a lot of possessions was they used, they took it from a text mining Uh, so uh, data mining on text where you have this thing called topic modeling uh, and they used the algorithms from there which was uh, really really interesting from just a whole math uh, perspective and such Um, but uh, it should also be noted that this was a really heavy operation Uh, like doing this took an immense amount of computer time Uh, they they their whole clustering of segments to see which like movement movements were like 
uh, that took them uh, 21 days to compute. Wow. So, <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> that's not for use for like a day-to-day operation. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I guess you have to, if you're going to have it be useful for day-to-day operation, you have to buy a pretty powerful Amazon server. <laughs> well, well, yeah, you could, you, all you could do some, some like do it before the season starts and then just everything that happens in the, in the following season, it's, you just add on into those clusters that you've made up. And, and, and of course, after the season, check whether something has, has significantly changed. Uh, but it is definitely like, uh, it, it requires a lot of computer power and also requires a lot of skill in the analytics uh, team that they are able to like do this. Uh, that's not for, I, I don't think I would be able to do this even if I got a supercomputer and an Amazon server or something like that. Uh. <laughs> yeah, I think, oh, I, I mean, I, I think with a lot of these papers, it, it definitely seems like these are usually people that have applied skill sets that they've built up over many, many years and, and taken the reason that they're able to come up with a novel approach to something is because they've been exposed to other things like um, data mining from text uh, and, and then like, hey, I could we could probably you know, use the same kind of algorithm to look at these different segments of plays and then to create essentially a visual language um, and then use the the algorithm to operate on that language to identify, you know, phrases and sentences, um, mm. also known as basketball sets. <laughs> uh, so, so I think that that's very, um, I think that's very interesting, uh, and I. I do think that it'll be interesting to see where those where those guys end up um, that that presented that paper, whether it's with uh, with a, t- a team or if they start their own shop or. So they, they it was uh, work done by oh, I can't remember the presenting guy's name. I think his name was Andrew, <laughs> uh, but but he did it with uh, Luke Bourne of uh, X and Y Research. Oh, okay, so there, which is they're... also the place where Kirk Goldsbury works, and, and so. They are in some place. <laughs> yeah, they are already already in a shop. Uh, so, um, yeah, I think they've they've been uh, X Y research um, and Luke Bourne in particular. I think it's been a finalist multiple times for the sort of the best papers um, that get submitted. Uh, those guys at X Y always do a, a really interesting work. So not surprising then that it that it came from them. I think yeah, you said Andrew. It's and it was Andrew C Miller. Um, uh, mm. uh, I guess he's uh, at, from Harvard. You know. Very smart. <laughs> so the that's I guess leads into the the next sort of uh, panel. I thought that um, was interesting because I know you you mentioned that they found that research very interesting um, at the uh, Ball Don't Lie panel, which uh, you can tell me who was featured there. I know Zach Lowe was there, um, but there was uh, so it was Zach Lowe and Sue Bird and uh, Daryl Morin. Vinny Del Negro, uh, I think Mike Saron was also there, and then Louis Scola. I think that's, that sounds about right. That's uh, uh, quite a panel. That's a lot of people. <laughs> yeah, there was a lot of I think Vinny Del Negro and Louis Scola was like last-minute editions. And there was a, I, Zach also noted in the beginning that this is probably the biggest panel, <laughs> um, which, is, which also meant that they had less like time to say uh, something uh, each of them because they, they uh, time goes fast when you only have like 45 minutes right, right. Um, so but Zach's first question was about these uh, this paper because it had been it had already been presented at that time and he asked um, 
uh, I think he did. He ask like Vinodel Negro. So what's this good for? Like what? What? Can, no, Dean Oliver was there. It wasn't Dermore. Sorry, he asked Dean Oliver. Uh, what's what's the what's this good for? And Dean Oliver said, "Well, defense. Like you know what your opponent is going to do." So. Um, but I think there's plenty of other things like that paper could be used for, but that, that's sort of where they kicked off the panel. And then they talked a lot about all different kinds of things. And and as with, with this and with all the panels, I encourage all the listeners to go to uh, the Nylon Calculus website, where there's a sum up of uh, both days at Sloan, because some of the people at Nylon have, have written like great recaps of everything that's happened. Um, but they talked about uh, one of the things they then went off to. They actually shifted quite fast away from the, the paper back, uh, about the sketches because maybe the I, I think it was maybe a bit too advanced to then talk about on the big stage. <laughs> uh, uh, and they shifted over to talk about a lot of other things, among others like uh, wearables. So whether it would be a good thing or not if, it, if there were wearables in the NBA and, and how the players would react. And I think... Louis Skoll had a really interesting reaction to wearables where he said, well, I know that some people say that, that, that they can sort of, um, now I'm paraphrasing, but I know that some people say that they can then find out some negative things about me. But on the other hand, uh, maybe they find out something that I need to know about my body. And also, there's still going to be 450 jobs in the NBA. Right, yeah. That, and and that I thought was a good point, actually. Yeah, that's the the debate about uh, around wearables. I mean, I th- I feel like with the the Sloan conference, some of these conversations because they are sort of ongoing are, are things that come up multiple years in a row. And so um, I w- I was just reading on the way into the conference, I was reading. Um, finishing reading Andy Glockner's book, which he gave me at last year's conference. It's called Chasing Perfection. It's basically ab- about, it's a uh, pretty, in some ways high level, but also there are times where he, he dives deep on uh, different teams in terms of how they're using um, analytics and, and uh, inf- more information basically to try to improve their teams. And w- the subject of wearables came up, uh, comes up in the book. And th- that debate is very much uh, sort of a- at the core of the, the chapter on that. And th- there is this this duality of like, well, it could help me stay healthy. And there's a lot more information about uh, how to maintain player health and, and how to, um, and then the, that's the great debate right now, I think, is, you know, who owns that data? Um, should, mm. should the teams have uh, that information? And, and to the extent that they do have it, how much should they have? Or should it belong to the players? And I think for some of the companies that are providing that stuff, they are uh, working directly with players. Um, I think P3 Sports, the uh, trainers out there on the West Coast, um, they do a lot with you know studying the biomechanics of players, and they own uh, they kind of allow the players to own the data. And if the players choose to share it with the team, then then you know that that's fine. Uh, but uh, you know, if you get into wearables and it's like a condition of playing on the team that you have to wear this wearable in practice, or you know that sort of thing, I, th- I think that that's where people might think that it becomes a little bit more uh, invasive, or, um, or or they get nervous around. Uh, gee, if they if they figure out that I'm you know a ticking time bomb of some sort for some injury, then they're going to get rid of me, and then you know some other team is going to think that I'm blacklisted <laughs> uh, to some extent. 
Um, yeah, but it's a it's a definitely it's a very interesting debate. It is, it is, and I'm I'm not sure actually sure what I what my opinion is, but I thought it was interesting that Scola said that. Uh, in general, he had a lot of interesting comments. He's a really really smart guy, yeah. uh, and his uh, he was asked by Sacklo how how would he like what would he do how would he tinker and experiment if he was running a team. And he said he would change practice so that there was more like actual game-like situations. Uh, and so he would uh, also also for the recording of stats. And so he would like line up a, a team A and team B uh, and let them play a game and record everything uh, to get more data about the players. Uh, and I would just imagine like, let's say the Celtics did that and well, yeah, let's say the Celtics did that. They lined up a, uh, Team A, Team B, Al Horford is captain for one team, Isaiah Thomas captain the other team, then they play against each other, and they really want to win, so let's say they give 90% of their game effort. Uh, <laughs> probably, you can't, you can't probably get their, like, total game effort, right? right. But, but let's, let's say you get that effort, and you do that a lot, and you, can, uh, you note down all the data, and that's... That I think you could then plug into your, say, your plus minus models and everything, and use that as additional data. Yeah, um, I think um, I think in terms of like sort of updating your, like the the theme for for most analytics stuff um, that I've read or, or the the people that I find the smartest on this kind of subscribe to the the idea of um, Bayesian reasoning in, in the sense of like constantly updating your priors um, with new information, you know, with the proper respect for sample size and those sorts of things. And yeah, I mean, anytime you can add additional information, as long as you can have a sense around how valuable that information is and how much it should influence your prior beliefs, I think it, it, it would definitely be valuable. I think the question for um, Scola, if he was a coach or, or a general manager, kind of uh, pushing more... The, for practice to be more game-like is what does that do in terms of player health? What does that do in terms of wearing them down? And that sort of trade-off is um, interesting because I think um, I think it was a couple of years ago actually. Stan Van Gundy was like kind of defending Tom Thibodeau um, at one of the panels, and he was saying you know that people get on him for practicing so intensely and having his guys work so hard in practice relative to the rest of the league. And he said you know guys don't don't learn or aren't as on point as they are for the Bulls or for whoever Thibodeau is coaching for no reason. Like it's because they get the reps at full speed in practice and a lot of other teams aren't doing that. Um, so there's always a trade-off. Well, counterpoint, this year's Timberwolves. <laughs> uh. Yeah, I mean, co- coach can only do so much, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, um, no, that's actually just to circle a little bit back to the wearables is that... Um, Sue Bird mentioned that they had used wearables on her teams at one point in the practices, and they had discovered that some of the drills they did, like the coaches thought that some of the drills were harder than others and some of them were easier than others. Like some days the coach would say, no, let's take an easy day, let's just play half court. And that would actually be some of the toughest practices because they 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 worked out really hard and it was really tough on them to play those half court uh, only uh, practices. And that could actually be interesting then 
to see whether those like game-like such uh, game-like practices would actually be harder. We don't necessarily know that. Right. It could be. It would be easier if you just play it like it's a game, and then call up some D-League guys if you need additional people. Right. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. I think they usually have have bodies uh, for having D League guys do it. Might be might be a, something interesting. But I know, like, actually, in having a conversation um, before the conference, I was talking to one of the guys from one of the teams, and they were saying that uh, that a lot of the times they have their their video guys who are like you know uh, D D three All Star level players uh, will, will go out there and they like have he was telling me you know they have the coolest job because they watch basketball all day they're in the film room and they're like being groomed essentially to one day be coaches but at the at the same time they're out there playing against you know the best players in the world in practice which is kind of interesting. And he actually told me one of the video guys, uh, it actually influenced their decision-making. I won't say who the player was, but they brought him in for a workout uh, before the draft, and the, the video guy kind of like um, uh, busted his ass a little bit. <laughs> and they were like, oh, we don't know about this guy, uh, which was like, which is kind of interesting to me. But, but yeah, I think that uh, they don't, they don't necessarily, I don't know if they completely lack for bodies, but uh, I, I take your point. I, that was just a story I wanted to tell. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and it's a good story. And it, that that's actually something like, I'll just maybe create a small break and say, like when you go to Sloan, you get some of those small stories because you get to meet some people that they they let loose a little bit and they they talk about well how their their team is doing or some of the journalists that you'll speak to they'll tell you some of the stories that they can't write about and so, so you, know, you get some of that inside information when you're actually there um, and then you could say well it's not that many people get to go but there was actually 3,000 attendants this year <laughs> so many people going yeah it's um it's it's really uh, a huge crowd a huge um, almost entirely male crowd <laughs> oh oh yeah. Yeah, that's something else. It's it's, it's white guys in suits. Uh, <laughs> it's it's business students, right? Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. That I know that's uh, that was a topic of conversation on uh, on Twitter, and um, even I think Daryl was on uh, Zach Lowe's podcast and uh, mentioned that they that he feels like they need to do better about that. But um, whether um, there are actual steps taken to, to do that uh, remains to be seen. But I do think that, um, you know, making it more friendly to the opposite sex would probably be would probably be good. There's a lot of, um, you know, obviously a, a ton of smart uh, female basketball fans that uh, probably have something to contribute. Um, we have Mara, who writes for our site um, uh, sometimes, and uh, she's one of the better data people um, on the internet, in, in my opinion. So, you know, I, I think that they're, you know, encouraging there to be more Maras would be, would be a good thing. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, definitely. Uh, I don't know if it's Mara I, I, or Mara. But I apologize if I pronounce it. I, I also say Mara, but I mispronounce a lot of words. <laughs> uh, but, uh, no, no, I was. There was a lot of guys, and now I have a background in physics and math, and even I thought that the, this conference <laughs> had a had a had a lag of like uh, the opposite sex. So uh, also in like the general diversity, also when it comes to racial aspects, was also pretty bad. Yeah, and that's. I'm saying that coming from uh, monoculture in Northern Europe. <laughs> uh, 
Yeah, yeah. So, oh, for listeners that, that maybe don't know, Bo is uh, is from Denmark. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's where the accent comes from. And if I say something that doesn't entirely make sense in English, it's because it's my second language. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, your your English is is uh, is very good and and much better than uh, my Danish. So <laughs> my Danish, which is non-existent. Also, uh, you went to, and it seems like everybody that was at the conference went to our f- former fearless leader. Um, s- s- uh, Seth Partnow's uh, talk. I guess he's still technically technically our fearless leader, even though he's working for the Bucks. He, he's still involved in uh, in in helping out with some of the edit- editorial side. I don't know if he's like turned into an, a sort of an idol instead. Like now he's 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 flawless and can't be criticized or anything like like, a fo- like you know a former president or something. <laughs> uh, uh, the the George W. Bush of Nylon Carpenter. <laughs> oh, uh, I, I don't. I don't know. That, that, that might not be the most flattering comparison, but I, I'm going to try to steer, steer us away from politics very quickly because some people may be turned off. Yeah, that's true. I'll try to excuse myself from like that. I don't know anything about that. Yeah, I, I, there's that. enough. There, I put enough politics on my Twitter feed. I, 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 I'm trying to keep it off of the podcast. Let's let's go back to Seth's talk because that was really, really good. And I uh, commend him for that. Well, there was a lot of people interested in what Seth had to say. There was lines outside. Uh, I came early and was on li- uh, row three uh, cheering. Um, <laughs> so Seth gave a talk on the myths and truths about the three-point revolution in basketball. Um, and it's summarized. Now, today, uh, Seth is director of basketball research for the Bucks, so he can't reveal anything about what he's doing now. <laughs> uh, and so he, his talk was in the line of talks, uh, given that was called competitive advantages. Uh, and so since he couldn't give away any competitive advantages from today, he draw upon a lot of the stuff that's been written about, uh, mainly by himself, but also by other people at Nylon Calculus. So in many ways, this talk was a validation of a lot of the stuff on Nylon Calculus, which was really cool to see. And he talked about uh, some of the myths regarding three points, uh, like the increase in three points uh, attempts, and how it's uh, instead of like people saying no, every, all everybody's just shooting a lot of threes today, and the NBA is nothing but threes and some dunks and some layups. And then he showed how well the shots that have actually gone down is just the long twos. So what you're like say what you're missing out on is the 17 footer off the baseline <laughs> <laughs> the Udonis Haslam shot uh you could call it um, and that's what you're missing today so a lot of the long twos have just been converted into threes uh, that was one of his points he also talked about how um the stars are still taking like people talk about the vanishing mid-range game but when they, what they mean about mid-range game, at least in his interpretation, also in a lot of people, I, I think, also mine, is the uh, pull-up twos and and by the star, uh, that kind of game, right? And those shots are still there when you look into the data. Yeah. It's the catch, it's the catch and shoot long twos that are gone, or at least dropping for most teams, smart teams, anyway, <laughs> and this. 
The, the, the Spurs still shoot them, <laughs> but but yeah. Well, the Spurs have the, the they have the personnel, right? That that end up uh, end up shooting them. I think like part of I, I would imagine a, a decent chunk of that is uh, Lamarcus Aldridge and Tony Parker because Tony Parker has has always loved the long two his whole career. <laughs> ditto ditto Lamarcus. Lamarcus has been traditionally a, a very good mid range shooter, so it's it's not been the worst thing, but. Yeah, the the Spurs are they're an interesting case in terms of where the uh, where their shot distribution comes from. But um, yeah, I think I, I think those the, the like the myth busting is one of the things that I think Nylon does pretty well. Like a lot of the times, we start from a hypothesis of you know taking the conventional wisdom of whatever it is and and just saying, well, is that true? <laughs> and, and you know if it confirms the conventional wisdom, okay, good. Then you know the conventional wisdom isn't uh, completely uh, false all the time. Like it's not just being contrarian just for the sake of being contrarian. It's just trying to validate the things that are true. And uh, if something is not true, figuring out why that is. Um, but to your point about the stars still still taking uh, mid range twos, um, if you think about like he's not a star anymore, but even like a, just a few years ago when the you know three point revolution was already starting, Paul Pierce would go to the that right elbow all the time. Chris Paul does the same thing. He he has you know that elbow jumper that that he makes um, a ton of use of, and it's a very good shot for him because. Russell Westbrook, for that matter. Yeah, yeah, he 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 takes the the pull ups, the pull up twos off of, off the dribble. You know, Stephen Curry has that shot. KD has that shot. Like they, Jimmy Butler, all all those guys have that shot still. Um, but yeah, to it makes no sense to to run a set, get a guy an open look um, from you know nineteen feet when it could just as easily be from twenty four feet and be worth an extra uh, extra point. And that's one of the things that Seth also touched upon is that it makes no sense to to go for that 19 footer when you can when you can get a three, and the NBA has just gotten smarter about this, and that's the narrative that you have to present. So Seth drew upon some some like psychology stuff from uh, Kahneman and Tversky, where he that you can't just convince people by showing them the numbers. Mm-hmm. You have to also show them a narrative that fits those numbers and explains why does this why does this change why is this this change and why does it make sense you can't just convince people by showing numbers maybe you and I can because we're so numbers like we're so deep into the numbers we'll be convinced but even then even numbers people they they need sometimes a narrative to to be convinced yeah i think so kahneman and tversky a, a, any of the the behavioral economics um and just psychology research is all stuff that i find incredibly interesting um and one of the the things that i've sort of um taken to saying is i think that humans are narrative construction machines and narrative consumption machines like we we live in narrative and um, narrative has become uh for a lot of sort of like analytics people and I, i include myself in that one of the first things i ever wrote online was like saying that narrative was dumb um, but, but that, that, that was back when I was uh, less, a little bit less smart. I, 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 this is one thing that I think I've gotten smarter on, and it's that we as a species, um, for a variety of reasons, will ba- um, backload narrative onto 
uh, events, even if it's even if it's uh, not consistent with the facts. A, a lot of cognitive biases that you can point to, uh, I think, result from a need for for a coherent narrative. I think like things like cognitive dissonance are are a result of our need for like a narrative about ourselves that makes sense and our belief system that makes sense. And if we find something that runs in against that, we will construct a narrative very quickly in our heads about how, it, how well, actually, like this is still totally coherent. And so understanding that, that people need narratives and having a good one and understanding how they work is, is fundamental to doing a good job in any sort of data data analysis or, or a job where you have to present data to um, decision makers. And I think that that is, uh, you know, a very well uh, made point uh, by Seth. And, uh, you know, I, th I think that it's something for anybody that is interested in this kind of stuff to keep in mind. Um, I, th I think it's what we try to do at Nylon Calculus. Um, we succeed at it sometimes, and sometimes we could do better at it. And uh, I, I try to do it with the podcast. Um, I don't do the podcast enough. <laughs> but, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think that, you know, we have some people that, uh, and people that have gotten better, frankly, uh, at doing this over, over the course of time. And uh, I, I would give a lot of credit for that to, uh, to Seth and to Ian Levy. I, I think I think it's it's also really interesting because jumping from from Seth's talk to uh, there was a talk with uh, or a panel um, with Daryl Morey, Sam Hinkey, and then uh, Billy Bean and uh, Farhan Sahai from the LA Dodgers. I know nothing about baseball. So. <laughs> yeah, you, you and I are largely in the same boat. I don't I don't know very much about baseball. At least not anymore. Okay, okay, uh, but. But they were talking about being de the the panel was called Money Mind, so like a riff of Moneyball, of course. And then it was about cognitive biases and how they how they all like knew that they had cognitive biases and what they did to sort of uh, adjust for that. And there was it was really interesting to hear them talk. And also because uh, I'm I'm sure a lot of listeners have like seen that Daryl Morey is part of the new Michael Lewis book about um uh which is about this behavioral econ economics uh, it's about Kahneman and uh, Tversky, right like yeah exactly yeah exactly uh and 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 the first chapter is about how the rock is draft uh and so so it's about how Maury himself also had to uh admit some of his biases and how the model was not always right and sometimes he trusted the model uh, too much and he should also trust the scouts and everything and it was really interesting uh, that was a really interesting read, and so it was also really interesting to see these guys up there sit and talk and discuss how they attack this, how they can try to attack uh, like stuff like uh, groupthink, like you could do uh, uh, secret ballots or uh, voting, uh, where people have to make their own models and, and and create their own opinions within the team, and then see who comes out at the top. But even then there will still be biases because you're using the same data and you're trained the same way and you have worked a lot together. Of course, there will be some groupthink. But but it was just really interesting to see that they had this, this knowledge of like, okay, we have the models and we trust them, but not 100% completely because we also have like scouting and there's also value in that. Of course, there is. And that can add in a lot of the other things, but there can also be biases in this. So like weighing all of this is a 
immensely difficult problem. Uh, but at least they, 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 they talked a bit about how they do it. And that was really interesting, I thought. Uh, they did also mention one thing that I thought was maybe a bit, I don't know. Uh, they, they got asked whether they thought they could uh, be a GM, success, a successful GM in another sport. Hmm. Uh, they all said yes. Uh, and well, I mean, potentially I would think they could be a GM, but if you put them, any of them in a GM position today in another sport, there, there would be a steep learning curve, right? Yeah. And they would take the time to adjust. And usually GMs don't last that long <laughs> that they would have the time to adjust. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. They, um, I, I think we'll, one, you're dealing with people that, that uh, are hyper competitive and, and, you know, I think pretty, pretty confident in their, uh, in their abilities. So I, I think that there, there's probably some of that that goes on there. But I also think like if you're in a sport that you know a little bit less well, that then maybe because you you know you understand the value that scouting brings in the sport that you're familiar with maybe you lean a little bit more on your scouts in that sense because you don't necessarily know the blind spots um, in the data uh, as much and I, I don't know I think I, I do think that like um, smart people that have a a thoughtful approach about things um, and are good at asking questions. Are, are probably and like a general manager is like suppose you know in, in most other uh, fields general managers move between industries and, and uh, things of that nature and they they pick it up the, the difference with sports is that you, you get a very short leash in sports to uh, pick it up which is what the, the point sort of you were making is like could they be successful if they were given like a patient owner that that like believed in them? Uh, probably, but it, would they get that? Uh, probably not, because there's not that many of those. <laughs> well, I mean, and that's also the like the path to GM they've they've had. They like they they, they haven't like started out in the GM position, right? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> so so it, yeah, like there's a lot of stuff to learn, and 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 if they like say they were an assistant GM for a few years and then became gm then then i would believe them but like transitioning directly i wouldn't <laughs> yeah it's a i mean it's a fair point i i, I think that um that, that is that is interesting i mean you there is an example of that um already happening i think paul de podesta who is one of the he was made into a composite character in the movie version of moneyball he was a baseball guy for a long time and now he's i forget which i think it's the browns i think it's a yeah, I think it's the Browns too. Yeah, so he. Uh, I someone mentioned it at the conference. Otherwise, I would not have known. Uh, <laughs> so he's he's an example of somebody who has made the the transition from front office in baseball to to football. Um, I, I think maybe there's a little bit more low hanging fruit in football um, than there is in some of the other sports. Uh, so just in terms of some of the decisions that seem relatively obvious to, that are that are suboptimal that football teams make. One one thing that I thought was interesting when we talk about this that they they should they, you have to present another narrative you have to give explanation to why the model does what it does and ex what it tells you what it does and that they mention it Seth mentioned it mentioned it and then you had uh, uh, an interview where it was Nate Silver interviewing Mark Cuban and they mostly discussed politics and let's leave that totally out of the question uh, out of this. But they also discussed uh, a little bit of basketball. And Mark said something interesting. 
because he said, well, these days the models and analytics have gotten so advanced that we don't even have to choose parameters anymore. We can just let the, the model do it. Like we can just use these deep learning neural network techniques and it will figure itself out what, what it needs for it to be successful. And that I thought was interesting because that's going the other way. That is uh, like trusting the model completely and then letting it figure out what happens. But if you're using a deep learning or neural network, then you might not necessarily afterwards be able to explain the model. Mm -hmm. And that then so that makes it really hard to, if you have that model, to communicate it to others. Why does it do what it do, what it does? Or, and and and. Let's say you have a team like the Mavs where the owner believes in this. So from the top down, everyone is uh, on point, like on aligned. Then it's fine because then he, the, the analysts, they don't have to like justify using models like this. But if you're not, if it's the analysts themselves that come up with like, let's try using a neural network. When they then have to explain to the higher ups what, what this model does, then that could be quite hard. Yeah, I, I would, you know, all due respect to, to Mark Cuban and um, full disclosure, I interned for the for everybody on the podcast listening to the podcast. I interned for the Mavs, so technically uh, I worked uh, for Mark Cuban, although I never got to meet him. I don't believe in the idea that of just going and, and using machine learning without a really good understanding of what the machine is doing and. Uh, sort of just letting the algorithms work, I think is uh, one, to your point, a, def uh, a recipe for completely unexplainable results, which uh, don't convince uh, basically anybody. And the other, the other aspect is um, it's not very scientific to just say, well, the computer figured it out because science, science is about putting up a hypothesis and then testing that hypothesis and uh, kind of understanding why your hypothesis worked or did not work. And I, if you just let the computer do it for you, uh, I don't think that that, that is, uh, is producing uh, much in the way of useful information. And there, there's... Um, Vivek Ranadive, uh, about three or four years, I think three years ago, when he did that draft project with Grantland, um, he said he said almost a, a very similar thing. Uh, very first thing he said when he popped up on the screen was that in the 21st century, math is going to to basically eat science, and and that you won't need to know the you won't need to know the why anymore. You um, you'll only need to know the algorithm. And that was something that I could not disagree with more. It, I don't think that just relying on math without an under, understanding of what the math is supposed to be modeling makes any sense because math is a model of the world that is not uh, objective reality. Uh, also, when using this on the NBA or any other, well, a lot of other sports like maybe the model is better. Like maybe the, the you, you figure out some sort of neural network model that is better at appraising players. Uh, the problem is when you can't explain why it is and you are dealing with a sport that is inherently uh, with a high variance, like there's, <laughs> there is a variance there that you'll never pin down, right? So when something goes slightly wrong compared to what you thought, then... You, you're having a harder time explaining that, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and you can, and since you can never narrow that down, you can never figure out a model that will explain like, or that that will predict every shot in tomorrow's NBA game. Uh, mm -hmm. 
that's impossible. Well, at least I think it's impossible. <laughs> if anybody else uh, disagrees, then please let me know on Twitter. Um, but so I think it's it's a dangerous path to go down where you figure have models that you can't explain. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I agree with that. Um, and I also like. I agree with that totally, and I also I, I do think that like understanding the models beyond just being able to explain it to, to somebody else um, to to make them feel comfortable. I, I do think that it's important for for uh, for its own sake in terms of like if you if you don't understand what's happening, how can you improve it, right? How can you get be- how can it get better uh, other than just upgrading your computer, which like. I don't know. That doesn't that doesn't feel like progress to me. But maybe I'm just being a luddite uh, or a, yeah, a, maybe. a luddite, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> maybe. And if there's any like neural network or machine learning experts out there who thinks that we're idiots, please please let us know because I, I by all means I'm not a I'm not an expert on the topic. I'm just skeptical on on the on Cuban's approach here, at least the ones that he he talked about. Uh, but if you will let me just rant for a minute or two, yes. Uh, because this is really <laughs> no, this is kind of related because when you have a model and you're not able to explain what it does, that that makes it really hard to use it, right? And so I'll take the example of you could say any type of the plus minus models that we have currently. It could be box plus minus BPM, or it could be real plus minus like RPM. Um, those like RPM is made by ESPN. And it's used a lot, but you find when you read some of their articles or when you listen to some of their podcasts, like their own journalists, they have uh, they are very skeptical about it, right? I mean, they'll mention that someone has some RPM, and then the other one will say, "Well, yeah, but I don't really like RPM," and then then they sort of go away from it. Uh, <laughs> well, first of all, I think that's a problem, but I think it's because ESPN is handling it handling it wrong. Uh, I, when you have the model like RPM, what it does is because it's the problem is it's really hard to tell why the RPM number is what it is. The way they've constructed it, it's just one number on the website, and there's no way of knowing what effects of play what what. What was it in the player's play? Like, what is it that affects it? Is it the stats? Is it the stats making up the prior to the model? Is it some of the lineups that he's in? Is it the lineups, how they do when he's off the floor? There's no way of figuring that out. And I don't get why they don't investigate and then just at least give it to their own journalists because that would be immensely valuable for them to be able to say, oh, so let's say Kawhi Leonard is a good example. This year, Kawhi Leonard's uh, defensive real plus minus is not that great. It's about a half or something like yeah. that. Last year, yeah, I was gonna say, I was gonna say his, his he's like way down the list of small forwards on defensive RPM, which you know if you watch Kawhi Leonard's uh, play seems absurd. Yeah, and last year it was three point eight eight, and uh, let's well. Also gloss over the fact that why do they have two significant digits on RPM? That's just insane. <laughs> um, but what's the difference between last year and this year in his play? And so you'll see journalists try to sort of write about this. They'll go, well, his on-off numbers are not that great. And, well, he is rebounding a bit lower. And, oh, well, he's also blocking a, few, a bit fewer shots. And they'll 
built all these hypotheses because it is a mystery to them why his RPM is lower. And I don't get why it needs to be a mystery. It, it shouldn't be this, like, I, I don't re really don't get why it needs to be this puzzle, why the RPM is lower, because they could, they have the model, they could investigate it and then show the different aspects of it, how they contribute to his RPM. Yeah, I, th I think the the one of the biggest challenges with, with RPM is that there, it, it kind of takes a... A very like it includes a lot of information, right? So it includes the the statistical prior, and it includes it includes height as an indicator for for defense. It may also include wingspan. I'm I'm not sure, but I know for a fact, uh, it didn't used to, but it's hard to say what's in it now. Yeah, uh, yeah they, it's a bit it's a bit hard to say. Um, and 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 that's that's not to say that RPM is a bad model. I think it's a really really good model. I think it's well made, and 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 I get all the points. They like in it because I, I, I really understand it. It's really good for player projection. It's really good for team projections. But to write stories about singular players, I think it's bad. Because when you have a singular player, let's say you have a, a player and he does something on the court that helps his team. The problem is if that behavior that he has uh, usually is detrimental. Because then you fit uh, the statistical plus-minus plus to, to get his prior. Uh, it works out like if a behavior is detrimental to the team, usually, then every player that dis does displays that uh, behavior gets penalized, right? Mm -hmm. Even though some of them, in some of the cases, it might be a good thing. Yeah. And that, that seems unfair, right? Yeah. And, and, and you could say, well, that's like in the old days when people, um, you could reverse it so that a good thing seems, uh, uh, if something is usually a good thing, then uh, it will be a good thing for everyone who does it. Uh, so that's just, just a reverse, right? That's like saying in the old days, you said, oh, this guy gets a lot of blocks. He must be a great defender. <laughs> Uh, and and that's that's uh, and we know that well some people they get a lot of blocks because they go for it and it's not a good thing. Um, the problem is there it's there it's uh, visible. All the journalists can see. Okay, he, it's this number is high because he gets a lot of blocks, and and this number is high because he goes for it. And so they can explain why even though this his block number is high, why it's a bad thing. With RPM, the behavior is obfuscated because it's it's hidden in the rpm number so there's no none of the journalists can go in and say okay his defensive real plus minus is bad because of this behavior yeah and that that seems that i for 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 someone who's they they have to communicate the sport right it, it seems weird that they don't try to do better yeah i, I think that the the way that like the the sort of adjusted plus minus portion of the calculation uh, works, I think it m makes it probably difficult to parcel everything out um, like for every single player. Um, like you can, you could say like, this is what the person's statistical prior is, and this is what the final number is. And you can see kind of how much they moved away or towards their prior. And then you can look at their, uh, then you could look at their stats and say do i actually buy their stats and maybe it should have in my opinion moved more or less right yeah that would be a first step but you could also look at some of the weights that some of the lineups get yeah uh 
I, I think that I, now I'm not an expert in how the method is done, but I, I, I think you could do some stuff that would at least even just internally just help uh, get a wider distribution of this and, and, and like to the people and they would like more buy in and it would be better. Well, they would be better at then explaining the players and why they get the numbers they do. Because right now it's really hard to tell when you look at a guy's uh, real plus minus whether, okay, is this fair or is this unfair to this particular player? Right. I've, I, and I think, I know other people have also done this. Like I, at one point ran like a regression against, against real plus minus with, like basically looking at the components like the components such as i i understand them or know them looking at like the uh regularized adjusted plus minus um so the rapm the uh i use box plus minus as like a stand-in for their statistical prior because i don't know the exact weights of their statistical prior and height and like that those three things explained like 85 percent of the variance between um between you know the different um, RPM. So that's most of it, right? But it's just like, because of the way that the calculation works, some players will get, will have more weight on their statistical prior and some will have sort of less weight because it's like, if the, if the adjusted plus minus um, equation, as it's trying to minimize the errors, moves them away from it to get to the, you know, the least amount of error, whatever, that that so for each player it would be different, but to your point, they would know that, right? Like, uh, yeah, like uh, <laughs> like Russell Westbrook, um, maybe he's getting like all of his credit from his statistical prior because his statistical production this year has been, you know, obviously incredible. And then somebody like Kawhi Leonard, like his statistical production is also very good, but like maybe he's, uh, you know, he's moving more towards sort of whatever his. Uh, RAPM number might be and you know that's the my explanation is fuzzy because I I haven't actually run a a, a (laughs) RAPM style model ever Uh, it's one of my goals is to to uh, run it with BPM as the statistical prior instead uh, just to see like how different the results are Um, because I, I wonder about their statistical prior and like how how good it is, just because I don't know what know, know what's in it, right? <laughs> so <laughs> yeah, well, they have access to some some stats, and and I, I I'm sure it's it's a good model actually, and I'm I'm sure it would be also great for like it's something similar to what is also being done in teams. I'm sure, um, right. where they have even better data to create better models. Um, I'm just not sure it's good as an explanation of particular players to a general public. Yeah, I think I think it's definitely leaned on uh, too much, even by like, you know, I, I probably uh, lean on it too much sometimes because like, um, for instance, like right now, I think there are like four or five guys at the top of the RPM leaderboard that are like, and again, to, to your point about there being two significant digits uh, at the end of it, they're, they're um, ascribing a, a, gr- a much greater degree of uh, certainty to the number by doing that than actually exists. Um, and you can kind of see that because the number shifts throughout the year and in some cases pretty significantly. And so there are, you know, if they had like, I mean, it'd be, it's not in the nature of a, of a large media company to to do something like this, but if they had like error terms around it, or at least like just said on average, you know, like there's 
a pretty wide range of like actual possible values for these players um and you shouldn't take them as gospel like there's four or five guys that like right now like so there's Le- uh, lebron uh, Kawhi, russell westbrook james harden and uh i think durant before his injury and maybe there's one other person who, who i'm forgetting now but uh, the, all those guys were are like right at the top of the leaderboard and like given the the error terms that are on this like it's reasonable to argue that like the person that doesn't have the top you know to the second digit uh rpm is actually doing more because uh, you know the, that number only tells you but so much Yep. Yep. <laughs> Completely agree. But I, my, my first my first piece on Nylon Ever last year was was about RP. <laughs> well, I can't do other stuff, but <laughs> I, yeah. well, I know that was a big like hobby horse of, of Seth's before he before he went out of the, the the public domain was that RPM is not rankings, and he also I think was of the mind that that we put too much emphasis on single number metrics in general, whether it's RPM or, or other variations on um, adjusted plus minus or even things like wind shares or, or things like that. He, I know he, he, he was said that he liked Dre, the, the metric that I put together, but I think he liked it because it was simple, right? Like it's, it's very explainable to the point that we were making earlier about narrative is that like the weights for Dre are very very simple. So like if if you look at it, you can say, oh, this person is ha- has a really good Dre score because they get a bunch of steals, and steals are very valuable by Dre. And so I think that that like simplicity was was um, uh, w- w- was useful. Um, and I think in general simplicity is useful. That's part of why I, I put it together was because I wanted something that was like uh, essentially like game score that John Hollinger put together, but I wanted it to be more like empirically based than uh, game score, which seems like weights that felt right um although maybe hollinger had had some numerical i actually don't know is it related to pr so the way he did game score is supposed to be like the linear weights version of of uh ah okay yeah yeah. um but like it's it's weird because it like double counts uh field goal attempts i think in a weird way and like gives you credit for taking more shots which is like Similar to the thing with PER, where usage is very highly valued, which is not necessarily a bad thing. Most most of your most of your sort of um, statistical plus minuses now, you know, say that usage is, is a very important thing, and um, you know, being able to take on a, a lot of possessions is, is valuable. Um, the usage efficiency trade off is a real thing. Sorry to everybody who doesn't believe that that's true. Um, <laughs> but uh, anyways. Um, yeah, I'm glad that you got that rant out because I do think it's a it's an important thing, and um, you know, people that are interested in our site, uh, I think, obviously, tend to have an interest also in real plus minus, and it, it's a good um, it's a good point to to make, and uh, you made it well. <laughs> Thanks. I think that's I think that's everything sort of that we uh, that we were set to talk about. But uh, did you have anything else you wanted to to hit on before we got out of here? Uh, it was fun. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this, this like going to this long conference was fun. I so I live in Copenhagen and I don't get to like meet that many other people who can like speak about basketball and about the stats behind basketball and so so it was really a lot of fun for me to to come and see uh 
like a lot of these panels and and if anyone have a, has an interest in basketball analytics I, I encourage you to try to go at least talk to some people that's gone and and and, and see if it's it's something for you uh, but it's it was a lot of fun like suddenly you're you're standing somewhere and you're bumping into Saglo or you're bumping into um, uh, Sharif Abdurrahim was there oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah I don't I don't exactly know what he was doing there but he was there and i maybe almost well, bumped into him as I say, maybe maybe he's looking to get into a front office he wants to learn yeah maybe maybe uh, no but it was it was a fun weekend and it was a great also meeting a lot of the nylon calculus guys because i mean i've only ever seen them as twitter avatars <laughs> uh and now now they're not anymore now i know what they look like and how tall they actually are and uh, i'm sad not I as tall as you on... <laughs> in general <laughs> Uh, yeah, I'm sad I missed out on the basketball game that was played on Sunday because I, with my I'm six five, so I could have had some effect on that. I think. Yeah, I think I think so. Based on my experience the last time I was I was there, although there there are some some guys that are, that have some pretty good size that 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 play in the game, or, or at least they did last year when I played. I, I, I'm kind of glad I didn't have to go to Adam Adam Mares. <laughs> Yeah, uh, Adam or uh, or Nate Duncan. Uh, Nate's a big boy, and uh, he knows he knows how to, uh, to to use his strength to his advantage in the post. Oh, I'm sure. <laughs> um, all right. Well, I uh, wanted to thank you for coming on, uh, Bo. And um, I know you you actually did write something relatively recently um, for the site about uh, LeBron's minutes load, so people should check that out. And uh, also, everybody should check out all of the coverage on Island Calculus about the Sloan Conference. There are a ton of interviews that uh, I think mo- it was mostly Ian uh, Levy um, did with various people that were there for the conference. Um, there's a ton of good stuff on the site right now about the conference. And, uh, you know, I think it's like 30 bucks to sign up if you want to watch the videos on YouTube. And it sounds like there was some pretty good discussion in a lot of those um, talks. So that might be worth uh, your money as well. Thanks again, Bo. I appreciate you coming on. Hopefully we'll have you on again uh, sometime soon. <laughs> De- dead silence. Maybe not. <laughs> Let's see. Uh, I was going to say, you're right. You're right. Because it is, it is tough to coordinate schedules uh, with Denmark. I, I just remembered that. Um, I used to I used to podcast with uh, Morton Jensen for a little while, uh, and uh, he we ha- we had some difficulties uh, in recording, especially because our other co-host for our uh, small Bulls podcast that lasted all about twenty five episodes was uh, he was in located in Australia, um, <laughs> Mark uh, Mark Karen Sulis. So so there was the three of us, and the only time we could ever record was Saturday, like early mornings and Saturdays uh, for me in the states. So. Um, that was that was a challenge but um anyways if we're not able to get you on uh hopefully i'll see you again next year at sloan and uh um thank you again for coming on appreciate it no problem
Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.